Lord, thank you so much for this time with these men and women. Uh, thanks that dad's here, Lord. We're especially grateful for him after brain surgery. And if it took brain surgery to get him here, then thank you. And thank you that he's, um, yeah, he's back. And we just pray for a full recovery, Lord, and beyond that, Lord. And for mom and dad's relationship as they uh, walk together in a closer way during this time of rehabilitation. Lord, we're just thankful, more thankful maybe than ever for life itself, the gift of life when something happens like that. Uh, you stop taking things for granted so much. What a gift it is to be alive. You've chosen for each of us to, to exist. It's good that we exist, and it's so good that you, in the fullness of time, sent your son to save us, Lord, that we might be born again into your family. And so we just come in Jesus' name and pray that you come, Holy Spirit, and that you would speak in power and lift up Jesus and give us understanding and help us to, to see him, see his beauty, see the beauty of your plan in Christ, um, and, to, and to step into it, Lord, and to, to live in it fully uh, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, friends, so we're, gonna, we're in Romans 8, 18 through 25, so a little shorter text tonight. And we'll have two more weeks, God willing, in Romans 8, and then we'll keep moving through chapter 9 and beyond. So I've titled, did everyone, did everyone get notes, uh, like a, just a page to take notes on? You don't have to take notes, but okay. I've titled, um, I've titled tonight's passage and talk, The Coming Glory, and you'll see why as we read it. And it's just a truly, it's a truly glorious passage. It's, it's for various reasons, one of my favorites. I feel like Romans 8 just gets progressively richer as you read on. And so this is glorious. The next two weeks are so rich. I'm really excited to dive in. Let me read Romans 8, starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Wow. I mean, I'm just going to read that again. That is a, that is a just baseball bat upside the head truth, uh, truth bomb. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and this is, a, by the way, this is a man who you can go to, what is it, 2 Corinthians 10 or 11? and read about Paul's sufferings. He just got, kind of gives a litany. This is a man who suffered more than most of us, maybe all of us ever will. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Wow. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Okay. So imagine that you have two people who have the same exact job offered to them, and they're both going to have to work it for a whole year. The job is absolute drudgery. It's 100-hour weeks. The first person is told from the start that he'll receive $50,000 at the year's end, and the other $15 million. Same job. So 50,000, first guy, second guy or girl, 15 million. Is there likely to be a difference, here's the question, in the way that they, that they work? 
And not only that, so is there likely to be a difference in the way that they work? Not only that, but in the way that both approach their work and see it. Yes. Not necessarily. Maybe. Oh, I'm, we're not going to well, let's not get too into the details, but I want you to hang on to that. Yeah. So obviously if the details are, if we drill into details, you know, the answer could change, but basically is there likely, likely to be, that's a key word, likely to be a difference in the way both work and in the way they approach the job and see the job. Of course there, there probably will be one thing. Uh, one will think he's getting gypped and probably hate his job. Remember it's absolute drudgery, it's hundred hour weeks and he's getting, maybe if you don't want to say 50,000, maybe you could say 15,000, something that's just a pittance. 50,000 obviously is not, but it's not a lot. Um, so, so he's going he's gonna to think everything that he's doing is, is just an absolute drag and probably not worth it. Um, the other, so, so he'll probably say something like, nothing is worth this. The other will probably say something like, um, this is nothing. Uh, same job, present circum- uh, uh, same present circumstances, the difference is the future reward, right? The, the only difference is the future reward. And it makes such a difference in the way that they're living that year. Um, or we could say the coming glory, right? The coming reward, the coming glory. That's really what Paul's talking about in this passage. Not only for, and here's the thing, not only for redeemed humanity, not only for those who are in Christ and who become new, a new creation in Christ, but also for all of creation. And Paul hitches the two, and we'll talk about that. So right now he says, we groan, and not just we groan, we groan knowing that we're still in sin. We're, not, we're no longer in bondage to it if we're in Christ, but we're still in sin. We're shadows of what we know we could be. In fact, we're shadows of what we know we will be in Christ. And yet he says all creation is actually groaning with us, waiting for the fullness of our redemption and adoption to take effect. Um, one day, so now we groan, but one day we'll frolic like calves let out of the stall, headed for the feed trough in far green fields. So the principle here is, how we see what's coming affects how we live today. How we see what is coming affects big time how we live today. So, yeah. I would also say, because we know what's coming, because we know who bought, who bought us for that reward or for that future, that we know the value of that guy that totally. was making $15 million, he knew he could do the job. Yeah, yeah. Because he knew how valuable All right. it was. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, to, to pull out a phrase of an old a friend who's a current friend, um, but he used to say a lot, you know, you know what you're worth by what somebody's willing to pay for you. And the gospel, among other things, is that God was willing to pay the highest price. His own beloved, his only and own beloved son, his own very self, right? To, uh, and we'll talk about that in, in a bit in the lecture, um, something that Tim Keller said about a verse in, in Hebrews. It's just so beautiful. So good point, Mom. Um, from in the last passage that we looked at the past two weeks, from 8, 1 through 17, to this passage, Paul zooms out big time. So just imagine a zoom lens. He's zooming way out. Um, Paul moves from our personal renewal and life in the Holy Spirit, which was last two weeks, right? 8, 1 through 17. Um, so he's moved from the first seven chapters of the book. He's really talking about the gospel and our being purchased by Christ and all that he's done and how that 
opens up the old te- what God's been telling us in the Old Testament, how Christ is the key that unlocks all that, and how it goes all the way back to Abraham, and, and so on and so forth. So our, our purchase, our redemption, the, the atoning sacrifice that he made for us, how he bought us off the auction block and gave his own life for us. But then in 18, last week, two weeks ago, last two weeks, he moves into, okay, that's, that's what we've been saved from, but we've been saved for life in the Spirit. He, he comes and he lives inside of us. What does it look like to be empowered by the Spirit? Not to be living in the flesh any longer. We're not enthralled to the flesh, to Satan, to sin. We're not bound for hell. How do we live as children of God? So he started talking about that. Um, but he moves from personal renewal in life in the Holy Spirit to the renewal of all creation because of our personal renewal, because of the renewal of God's people, the church. Um, so the one leads to the other. They're connected. A creation to us, God's image bearers, his sons and daughters. But, but we'll get to that. My point as we begin is that Paul here zooms out from us to all creation. Okay. So the three major themes of this passage, I think, are laid out in the first three verses here, 18, 19, and 20. So he really compresses it, um, then he expands a bit. So first point I have there in your notes, comparison. Future glory will dwarf present sufferings. He really says that in the first verse, right? Comparison. Future glory will dwarf present sufferings. Um, let's look at that, and then we'll get to the other two points in, in due time. So comparison. Future glory will dwarf present sufferings. I thought about putting these couple block quotes. I have some quotes, and I have, I have some block quotes, and I have some stories. I have more stories than usual tonight. Um, it just happened to, to go that way. I, I am trying to lace in more stories. I'm trying to tell more stories. Um, so, so here's, here's the first block quote, and you won't be surprised of its author, C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. This was a, originally a, um, a sermon that he preached at St. Mary's in Oxford in 1941 as, uh, as Hitler was just absolutely ravaging London and uh, bits of the UK with bombs, and they were in the, in the heat of, of uh, World War II. So he preaches this sermon, The Weight of Glory, and he says, He's looking at a much bigger, a much bigger picture and a much bigger timeline. He says, we do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough, right? Just, just to see beauty is bounty enough. We want something else which we can hardly put, which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it. I think, this is me, I think that's something of what he says here. We don't, it's not enough to see beauty. We want to pass into that beauty that we see. It's almost this inarticulate groan that we, we know that we're made for more than just seeing beauty. We want to be part of that. I think that's one of the reasons that we say things. We betray ourselves with the way we speak. Way we, one of the reasons we say, like, I just want to eat him up when we talk about a little kid. Everybody says that. It, it sounds, if you think about it literally, it's like, that's disgusting. What are you talking about? You want to eat this child, eat his face off? No, that's not what people mean. They want to get, we want to get the innocence and, the, and the, the pristine beauty and the joy of that child inside of it. No, we don't want to eat that child. But it's, it's, it's our way, our, our silly, simple way of saying, I think of, of conveying this truth that, um, at least in part, that Lewis is talking about. So we want to be united with the beauty that we see to pass into it, he says, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. This is why we have peopled air and earth and water with gods and goddesses and nymphs and elves. He's talking about literature, of course. That though we cannot Yet these projections can enjoy in themselves that beauty, that beauty, grace, and power of which nature is the image. That's why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a human soul, but it can't. They tell us that beauty born of murmuring sound will pass into a human face, but it won't, or not yet. 
For if we take the imagery of Scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give us the morning star and cause us to, be put, to put on excuse me, the splendor of the sun, then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry, so false as history, may be very near the truth as prophecy. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see. But all the leaves of the New Testament, Lewis says, are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. So that's something of what Paul's talking about here. Our present sufferings cannot be compared with what is coming to those who are in Christ through faith. They cannot be compared with our future glory. This is an astonishing statement for at least a couple reasons, right? And we could spend the rest of the night on this. Number one, what it says about our present sufferings. Um, it, you know, they seem all-encompassing at times. They seem to just engulf us. We are in a broken world and we are broken people. You know, but think back to Romans 7. Even as a redeemed people, sometimes I feel like I can't even get out, hardly get out of bed in the morning. I'm hitting, I'm hitting up against the same sin again and again and again. Um, so, and that's not even, that's just talking about my own inner struggles. I'm not even talking about some of the major, there's in, internal suffering and then there's the suffering of the world that the, that the news makes its money on, you know, bad news sells. And there's always plenty of it to go around every day. Um, and we live in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a country where there's far less of that kind of suffering there's, than in lots of other parts of the world and most of the rest of history. And, uh, and there's still tons of suffering, right? So wh- what it says about our present sufferings, they seem all-encompassing at times. Paul's not minimizing them. He's contextualizing them. Remember, like I said, Paul has had his fair share of sufferings. He's no ivory tower or armchair theologian. It's in 2 Corinthians 11 where he just has this litany of things that he's, you know, he's been stoned this number of times. Not stoned like smoking weed, like stoned like with rocks to the point of death where they literally thought he's dead. And they, the people stoning him thought he was so dead they left him for dead. He could have been dead. He, well, yeah, he could have been dead. He was, and so he was beaten with rods. He was shipwrecked. He was almost drowned. He went sleepless days and nights, you know, wandering and uh, not to mention snubbed and run out of town and ridiculed and on and on and on it goes, right? Um, but Paul says, if we can read it again, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. He didn't say, hey, they're smaller than. He said they're not even worth comparing to what's coming. Not even worth comparing. So that's the first thing is what it says about our present sufferings. Number two, though, what it says about the glory that awaits us. It will dwarf, he's he's saying it will dwarf our sufferings for at least two reasons I can think of. The first is the beauty and the power of the glory, its quality. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Louis Giglio. He has a, he has a, if you, you can YouTube it. Um, I meant to, uh, I, I meant to, to check this. I just wrote this out last week and, um, and didn't go back to it. But it's, I think it's the How Great Is Our God tour. And if you just type in Louis Giglio, um, How Great Is Our God on YouTube, it's this, it's this talk that he gives on the greatness of God. But a lot, a large part of it is he talks about, he shows us the size of the, stars, some of the stars in the universe. And um, our sun is huge. I think, I think he says like a million earths can fit inside of the sun. But then he goes on to compare this. He has this graph where everything is proportional and he shows the sun compared to the, 
the earth and you, the earth's just like a speck. And then he moves, the, the thing is just moving this way as he talks about these different stars in the universe. And by the time he gets to some of the bigger stars, just that we're aware of, you can't even see the sun. It's so small by comparison. He goes, you, could, you can't even get a Sharpie. It's this massive screen and go up and put a dot small enough on the screen for the sun, which is a million times the mass of the earth. Um, and so, and those are just, those are just individual stars. I mean, let me just, let me just give you one in particular, and this is one he talks about, and this isn't even the biggest bias by a long stretch. Betelgeuse, which you can see with the naked eye, even in Houston, which is like a miracle. Um, I can actually see it above the gable in my house on the, on the right night, but it's part of the um, Orion constellation, which is one of my favorites. It's the left shoulder of Orion, if you're looking at it, and he, it's a red dwarf. It's a, it's, a red, it's a red giant. So even with the naked eye, you can see it's kind of got a rust color to it, and um, it's so big that, you know, how, does anyone know how far away the sun is from the earth? Okay, 93 million miles. Brain, brain surgery, man, got it right. <laughs> that's, good job, Dad. Man, that's, if that's proof that you're back, <laughs> well done. <laughs> that was awesome. Well, well placed. Um, so 93 million miles away. Uh, at the speed of, you know, light travels that distance in eight minutes. So, so whatever sun you're feeling tomorrow morning, just think, oh, eight minutes ago, that was, on the sun, that was coming from the sun. It's traveled 93 million miles through space to get to me. What a miracle. Uh, but... Uh, Betelgeuse is so big that if it were in the place of the sun, it, it would actually engulf the earth. And I think far past it to, to Mars and beyond is what I think what I read. That's how big, I mean, just the radius is like over a hundred million miles bigger than the sun. And that is, I can't even, and that's not even one of the biggest stars that we're aware of, okay? Not to mention the vast stretches between the stars in space. It's just unbelievable. It's just, it boggles the, you can't contain it. So um, the sun is huge compared to our earth, but compared to the other stars in the universe we know of, like Betelgeuse and Musifi, um, it's tiny, right? So again, the sun is huge. Our sufferings are huge, but when you compare our sufferings to what is coming for those who are in Christ, it's nothing. You see, it's about perspective. He's not minimizing our sufferings. He's putting them, he's contextualizing them. And then, so that's the first thing, the beauty and power of the glory. But the second is the length of the glory, right? It's, it's, uh, it's quantity. It will last, not just its quality, but its quantity. It will last forever, forever. Another illustration of, a, of another famous preacher, pastor, teacher comes to mind. Have you seen Francis Chan's illustration of the rope that he gives back before he, yeah. And it's... Um, Say again? Oh, really? Okay. So, yeah, he's in a, at a church. I thought it was his church, but it's a big church. It's probably not his church then. And he has this rope, and it's really long. I mean, I, you can't see the whole thing on the video, but it's go, it goes, like, down the, down the stage all the way, presumably, to the end of the huge auditorium. And he's like, just imagine this just goes through the city all the way. I think he's in L.A. or something. It's like, keeps going. And he goes... And there's a little piece of like red tape or marker on it. And he just holds that. And he's like, this is, this is our life. This little dot right here of red. And this is eternity. Just imagine it keeps going, 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 going. He's like, the crazy thing is we live, we put all of our eggs in this basket with the red on it. But yet the way that we live here, including most importantly, right? Who, in whom we trust, who we give our lives to, who we follow, Jesus Christ. It, 
But what, however we live, whatever we decide, whatever we trust in, and whatever we do, it will, it, it will affect the entire rope. And yet we, most of us in our world system just live for this little bit. Um, and so Paul is zooming out and he's going, not only is all creation connected to our redemption, but uh, if you look at what's coming, it really our, our present suffering is, is completely dwarfed. And it will allow us to, to get through, that perspective will allow us to get through that perspective of glory and beauty, of which we get a taste now, by the way. It's not, it's not like it's all just coming. We get, we get a taste now, and Paul talks about that, and we'll talk about that too, because he comes to live inside of us now. We get a taste of that redemption now, a real taste of, of Jesus Christ himself by the power of his spirit and the goodness of, uh, now shadowed goodness, yes, but the goodness of the community of the saints, the fellowship of the saints, and, and, his, and his good word, and his good spirit, and, and, and on and on it goes. But that's just a taste of what's coming. It's like just a sip of, of water when there's an ocean awaiting us, okay? And so um, I think of Francis Chan's, when, when it comes to the length of the glory, uh, and not just its quality, but its quantity, I think of Francis Chan's rope. Um, so this approach helped Jesus endure his sufferings. Okay, what do I mean? What, what verse am I? This is the bit I was forecasting earlier with, that Tim Keller mentions. What, what verse am I thinking of when I say this approach, approach helped Jesus endure his sufferings? That, now, you could come up with a lot of them, but does anything come to mind? There's a famous, yeah. For the, okay, perfect. Nailed it. For the joy set before him. It's, where is that? Okay, perfect. That's a fridge magnet verse, right? Memorize it if you haven't. Can you say it? Can anyone say it for us? Andrew kind of started it. Mom's. endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. I'm like, yeah. Okay, so, and mom doesn't have her Bible with, us, with her, so we know that's from memory, right? I stole it. Uh, Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set out for him. I must have taken this from a different, okay, I think it's set before, well, I'm not going to turn there, but I think the ESV says set before him. For the joy set out for him, he endured the cross. Tim Keller says that there's only one thing he didn't have before he came, right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There's only one thing he didn't have before he came. Um, in his eternal realms of glory as God's perfectly loved son, there's only one thing he didn't have. That's right, us. He came for us. He came to rescue us. He came to take onto himself what was condemning us to an eternity of hell, of, of despair, of, of payment for the ways that we rebelled against God because God is just and payment has to be made. He came to pay that himself, right? And to, to offer himself as the redemption price to win us back. Um, he didn't have us. Christ looked ahead to redeeming us and it helped him follow through with the cross. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. This future joy helped him despise the shame he would experience for a little while. That's what the verse goes on to say, right? He despised the shame. He considered it as if you can kind of take Paul's language here, he, cons- he considered it as nothing. It's amazing compared to the joy of, of redeeming us and of, and of having us join as brothers and sisters in the glory of what's coming in his kingdom. I think the first thing that we're going to do, whether it's when we see him face to face, maybe we'll hit the knee, certainly we will, wrap our arms around him, but, or when he returns and we all at the same time have resurrected bodies and the creation, as Paul says here, and we'll get to, is made new. I think what will happen is we'll just, our jaws will drop. I, I don't know that we'll have words. Um, 
that's something of what Paul's talking about here. The author of Hebrews enjoins us to, uh, to also look ahead to endure the present sufferings that we endure. Um, especially to look ahead to Jesus, to fix our eyes on him, his beauty, the beauty of what he did for us, to gospel ourselves, to gospel ourselves. And that's something of what I think Tim Keller was talking about when he was commenting on Romans 8, 5 last week about, about um, let me just go ahead and read it. it. Paul says in Romans 8, 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. And one of the ways Tim Keller interprets that is they, they set their minds on the beauty of Christ and what God has done for us through his son, Jesus, and the beauty of the good news of how he's redeemed us. And, and that changes us and that we keep that in front of us um, by being in his word, uh, by reminding ourselves of the God, by gospeling each other, by gospeling ourselves, by being constant in prayer, by letting God to allow pain and suffering to fix our eyes on Jesus and to cut away those things that so easily ensnare us, right? So, um, of course, this is what anyone does who is, let's take this sort of Hebrews, Romans, it might sound very Christian, and it is, but actually it's very practical, right? It, it works in every area of life. This is what anyone does who's seeking a prize that's going to take a lot of suffering. How much did you suffer when you got your, to get your PhD? I, I mean, a little. <laughs> a little? I think you suffered a lot, right? Now, she maybe said a little because it's like, oh, she didn't, you know, she wasn't having her house bombed, you know, she wasn't being persecuted, for, but when it comes to, like, working for something, that was a lot of, I mean, that was hours and hours and days and months and years of study and time and effort and, right, and, and, and hard labor. So think of the Olympian. Think of the doctor. Think of the man in love with his future bride as prize, right? Um, Keller mentions, I mean, I mean, Olympians will work for, and doctors, and, and, and you know, they will work for years and years and years and years and years for this prize, and they think it's worth it. Um, Keller mentions uh, in his sermon on Jacob working for Laban so he could marry Rachel, you know, the fact that he worked seven years. The, the, the deal that Laban, her dad, worked out is, hey, okay, you, you're in love with my daughter, my younger daughter, Rachel. You're smitten, beyond smit. And so uh, how about this? You work for me for seven years. Laban was a deal, a dealer and a wheeler. You work for me for seven years and I'll give her to you. And so what did it say? What was the commentary on that? Was that tough for Jacob? Yeah, it said it seemed to him like a few days. Anyone who's been in love understands what that, exactly what that means. You hear all the time people driving, and I've been, I've been one of them. I've been there driving across the country for a date, you know, or whatever with the person they end up marrying. Or, it's just crazy. He worked for seven years, and it seemed like a day or two. because he was because, It says because of his great love for her. Just take that and multiply it times an infinite amount. And that's what that is. You pack that into the, that's what that verse and so much more means in Hebrews 12 2, and it says for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He had, you know, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with the, with 12 stones on a breastplate that represented the 12 tribes of Israel, the people of God to make atonement for their sins. And, and that is a picture that never took away a single sin. Jesus took away every sin. It's a picture of how Jesus went all, went to the cross with us on his mind, on his heart. Glad to do it for the joy set before him to get us back, to bring us to himself, to bring us into his, into his glory. Um, so they seem to Jacob as but a few days. Again, Jesus for the joy set before him and us, our future glory. Um, Romans eight eighteen again, for I consider that our present sufferings cannot be, even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. Paul elsewhere, like in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, one of my favorite verses, and this is, 
the verse that C.S. Lewis writes his sermon, Weight of Glory, from which I quoted earlier from. Um, he says, for this, Paul says, for this light momentary affliction. Again, that's the same thing, right? I, I don't think our present sufferings can even be compared. It's the same kind of language in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He says, for this light momentary affliction. Man, if you're in the middle of some massive suffering, that seems almost like a slap. But Paul, again, he could say this because he had suffered so much. And he's saying, hey, it's light, it's momentary. This affliction is preparing for us an eternal, okay, that's momentary. This is, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So what is he doing? He's comparing it. He's comparing what's coming to this present suffering. And so it just helps. But also he's saying, not only is, it, is he doing a comparison, he's saying, actually, it's not for no reason. He said, God is using all this affliction to what? Prepare for, it's for a, man, you could do anything if you know it's for a good reason. Um, I think it was, I think it was not Solzhenitsyn, but um, Fyodor Dostoevsky, who spent some time up in the gulags up in Siberia. I think it was Fyodor Dostoevsky that either one, it was Solzhenitsyn or, or Dostoevsky that wrote about, um, uh, I'm, 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 I'm stumbling a bit because it's not in the notes, but it came to mind that he wrote about the, the Siberian, the gulags under the Soviet Union and where they would send prisoners and folks they wanted to punish. And they were basically two divisions. In one division, they had the really tough job, like in the Siberian winter, of building the places where, these, where the prisoners would, would sleep and stay. And they were they're building the barracks and they would saw down the trees and plane them and all the stuff, right? And, and they actually were fairly, they, they lasted, they, they lived, they were hale and hearty for the most part. They did, they did something else, which I think was less, even less physically demanding, but they would send the people that they really, really uh, just didn't want to last. They would send them uh, to carry rocks and they would have a pile of rocks at one end of the camp and they would have them carry rocks to another end of the camp and drop them. And then they would carry those rocks to the other end and they would just do that back and forth. And there was, the work was so pointless that those people ended up dying at a far greater rate and getting sick. And so what Paul is saying here is that we have to understand that in the same way that God used the suffering of Christ for redemption, because of the work of Christ and because of his cross, he can and will also use every bit of our suffering uh, for good. Um, and so, and, and Paul actually gets to that, a li- I think we'll probably get to that next week in Romans. Um, and so that is such a, an empowering thought. Like he's using, this isn't wasted. Not only is it by comparison to what's coming, nothing, but he's actually going to use this. It's going to contribute to my future situation. So it helps us suffer well. Um, God is, he's the ultimate recycler. He's super efficient. He doesn't waste, he doesn't waste anything. So, um, this is about our vision. What, are, what is our vision and what are we focusing on? Fixate on him. He is the best part of the coming glory that we, we will be revealed to us. Um, the verse that just precedes the, the text that we read tonight, Romans eight seventeen, Paul says, and if children, he's talking about those in Christ, he says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Okay, fellow heirs with Christ. He puts us on the same level. We, are, we, are in, we have Christ's inheritance, not a sub-inheritance. He says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified 
with him. Um, now, let me just make a brief note before we go to point two, connection to groaning, creation also suffering because it's connected to us. That um, Verse 19, the comment that I want to make regards a preposition. Let's read verse 19. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Um, I don't see the preposition that I was looking for. Let me just read my notes. Okay. Nope. Okay. Sorry. 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 It's not verse nine. Before moving to 19, it's a preposition in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Okay. Um, the ESV has, well, like I just read, the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so does the New English translation. The KJV, the King James, the authorized version, has the glory which shall be revealed in us. See the difference? Right? One, there's going to be a glory revealed to us. Aha, we see it. One, and the second, there's a glory just revealed in us, revealed in us. That's because the Greek here is ice, E-I-S, which means into. So you can see why the ESV chooses the two of into, and the King James chooses the in of into. But there is a difference. Will the coming glory be revealed to us or in us? And the answer, what? In, yeah, well, I think the answer is yes, both. We can see this by reading the verses that follow, right? The glory will happen all around us in creation, but it will also happen to us, like Jordan said, or in us. We will change. Like C.S. Lewis said, we will, we will pass into that beauty that we see in Christ. Um, and again, he talks about that. He talks about how in his high priestly prayer, the last prayer he prays for the church before he goes to the cross, he says, Lord, I pray, Father, I pray that just as I am in you and you are in me, so they would be in, so I would be in them and they in me, right? And, and God answered that prayer. When, Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, it is the very spirit of Christ himself. And it's a taste. It's, it's an it's a unlosable taste of what God's going to bring us into fully. Of course. Um, I don't know if I'll have an answer, but... Yeah. To be more like him. Yeah. And the thing that we already talked about Hebrews 12, but in Hebrews 2, uh, verse 10, it says, For it was fitting that he, yeah. for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, perfect. Through, suffering. through suffering. He learned, through right? Suffering. Yeah. Through suffering. So That's right. Even Jesus. Christ, yeah. You know, we also, yeah. like just as he suffered. That's right. Right. And in union with him, right? Which is the foundation of our salvation. That's right. How can... Yeah, and that's another, not even ancillary, it's a central encouragement that's another attached reason um, that Paul's hooking into here as to why we can be encouraged in our present sufferings. Yeah, not only their quality and their quantity, not only is, is the glory coming going to be so amazing that by comparison this should be nothing, even though it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's tremendous, but compared to what's coming, it actually puts it in a, in a helpful context. But also the length, by comparison, this is, it's the Francis Chan rope. It's, but then also, 
even most importantly, man, if the Lord Jesus himself uh, went, chose to go through this for future glory uh, and his, his own journey, he submitted to suffering to, to be able to come up alongside of us and to learn as a, as a full human, as, as the, uh, the God who knows all, he remained God but left his glory and, and certain things about his divinity, he, he left them in, in heaven with the Father and came down fully God to earth, fully human. And uh, if, if, if he did that for us, what an encouragement. That, that there's a sense in which, like Paul talks about in Philippians 3, that uh, the fellowship of his sufferings, you know, and the power of his resurrection, the two are linked. And that as we suffer, there's a sw- certain sweetness of fellowship that you can begin to taste and appreciate and enjoy the Lord in ways that you never did before. And that is such an encouragement. And, and that will last forever uh, in an unvarnished, undiluted way when, you see him, when we see him face to face. So it's not wasted. And that's a great, the best point. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, okay, I'm getting to that next. Can, I, can we wait? And then can you hold on? Yeah, absolutely. That's the next thing. Let me just finish with this preposition in verse 18. Almost, almost done, and then we'll move to point two in verse 19. Um, okay, so, so will the coming glory be revealed to us or in us? Yes, the answer is both. Um, the glory will happen all around us in creation, but it will also happen to us or in us. We will change. And when we change or are glorified, all creation will follow. That's what we're going to get into next. That's where Paul goes. To take from Lewis's words quoted a moment ago, some, someday we shall get in, into the glory but the glory will also get into us more fully, that is, for it's already begun, right? Which is what Paul spoke of in Romans 8, 9 through 17. We have a taste of the coming glory and of our redemption, a real taste in the fact that God dwells inside of us truly in, through his spirit. Um, and this is really what Paul goes on to say in the rest of our passage this evening. The present suffering will only enhance the glory coming for all who are in Christ by faith. For us and for the new creation, we will inhabit forever, okay? So whereas we see, now we don't pursue suffering, that's, masoch, that's masochism. Suffering is an evil. It will be done away with one day. But God, but we, as God brings us into suffering in this world, you will have suffering, right? But, but take heart, I am with you and I have overcome the world, right? He's with us, he's gone before us, and he's using it. He's using it for a future glory that's coming. We got it. If we keep that perspective, and Paul's trying to help us to do that, man, it changes everything. It's not, if you just think it's, it's, it's if you think it's pointless suffering, you're going you're gonna to wither. But if you realize, oh man, it's the opposite of pointless. Oh boy, you're going you're gonna to bloom. You're going to flourish no matter what you're going through. Makes you stronger, right? Just, again, yeah, just like the athlete, just like the person pursuing the PhD, just like that. It makes you smarter, more honed, more disciplined, stronger, um, Christ, Christ will do that. And what he's doing in, through a lot of our suffering, he's lopping off the false dependencies, the idols, the things that we look to for salvation, uh, the good things that we make great things. He's lopping those edges off and those burrs off. And he's, he's making us to long for him more, to, to be more delighted on him. Like the psalmist in Psalm 73, one of the most wonderful psalms in the entire Psalter, it starts off dismal. It starts off by saying, man, I almost lost my faith completely. I was looking around at the wicked. They were getting everything. They were fat cats. And I was sitting here suffering for God. And I was, he was comparing himself and he was, ticked. But then he said, I, everything changed when I realized I have an eternal perspective. 
And by the end of the psalm, it's this sublime where he just said, one of the most sublime statements in the whole Bible where he says, you know, uh, whom have I in heaven but you? Whom have I on earth but you? And in heaven there is, and whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing I desire besides you. Nothing, right? I mean, it's one of the most sublime statements. Um, but he, that happens through, through suffering as it fix, helps him fixate on the Lord. Um, okay, so secondly, let's get into verse 19. Mom wants us to, we will. Connection to groaning, right? So again, just to review the first point, comparison, future glory will dwarf present sufferings. Point two, connection to groaning. Creation also suffering because connected to us. So why does creation suffer? Why is all of creation groaning? Because we sin. And, and let's keep going. Why? Because we sin, that's right. And why is creation connected to us? Why, why should it be suffering? Because we got cut off from the Lord. And yes, but what before that? That's right. It's connected to the dominion mandate. Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28, right? Because we were made vice regents, made in God's image, made alone. Not even the angels were made in his image. Not, the angels cannot be redeemed. When they fell, they're gone. They're beyond redemption. We can be. Made in God's image, he gave his own son for us. He did not give his son for the angels. We were given dominion over all that God had made to be co-regents, co-rulers, vice-regents with him as his image bearers to spread his goodness and glory around the world, around creation. We failed in that miserably. Jesus came to do what we failed to do, okay? As the image bearer, as the true son, and to make, to make us, to bring us back into sonship and daughterhood, right? To reign over all. But because we had this, we had this dominion. Everything under our rule cracked when we cracked. It was all shattered. So what we're looking at in the majesty and the grandeur of creation is a cracked version. Can you imagine? I mean, the beauty of the heavens, the Rockies, a sunrise, a sunset, and on we could go. It's just a shadow of what's coming. It's just a shadow. The Psalms talk about it like when, when the king comes again and everything is renewed and, and, and it will be like the trees will clap their hands and the rivers will sing and dance. I mean, it's, it uses poetic language to say that we ain't seen nothing yet. We're looking at a trash can. We're looking at a trash can compared to what's coming. Okay? Again, it's a way to go, oh my goodness, the future glory. But what Paul's saying here is, it's, uh, it's groaning because we're groaning. It's waiting. Here's the thing. It's an amazing conflict. It's actually waiting. All of the universe is waiting for our full redemption. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Okay, let's get into it. Verse 19 tells us that creation is waiting, and not just waiting, but waiting with eager longing. Um, this is a little bit nerdy, but Paul is employing mimesis here, which is an art, a literary device. The way he uh, phrases this imitates what he is saying. So the how of what he is saying reinforces the what, the content. Pay attention um, to the ordering of the words, the syntax in the original Greek. Um, so for with eager, so this is the, the, this is the syntax of the original Greek of verse 19. For with eager longing, the creation, the revealing of the sons of God awaits. So what is creation waiting for? We have to wait until the end of the sentence to find out. This longing of creation thus pulls us with it to what it awaits. So he says, for with eager longing, and then you kind of go, wait, for, with eager longing what? For with eager longing, the creation of the revealing of the sons of God awaits, okay? So this longing of creation pulls us with it 
to what it awaits, the revealing of the redeemed. Um, In fact, this verb occurs three times in this passage. It's the theme of the passage, eager longing, okay? Uh, The only other time, um, excuse me, um, so, sorry, waits, waits, it awaits. That's That's the verb that occurs three times in 8, 19 through 25. It's the theme of the passage. Creation is waiting for our redemption. The only other time that the noun eager longing is used is by Paul in Philippians of himself. I think it's 120. I didn't write it down. He is saying here that the creation is waiting and longing right now. Again, what's it waiting for? It's right there in 19. Yes, the revealing for the revealing of the sons of God. That word, anyone know that Greek word? No? It's a good guess. It's the word, it's the, it's the title of the last book of the Bible. Apocalypse. Good. It's waiting for our apocalypse. That's the Greek word. It's waiting for our revealing. An apocalypse just means a revealing. It means the curtain, curtain is being pulled back. Who's behind the curtain? Ta-da! You know, the curtain's pulled back. You can see, all right? That's what it's saying. Is It's saying, man, look, it hasn't even been yet shown what we're going to be. The curtain's going to be pulled back. It's going to be revealed who we are in Christ, what he actually made us for. We're just getting little tastes right now. Does he, I'm sorry, does he, he must mean the revealing of the sons of God in their future glory. That's right. Because he's already said that we're sons of God. That's right. So we're actually going to get to that. Exactly. To be sons of God by virtue of the indwelling of the Spirit yep. in us. Yep. But so it must mean this is eschatological. Totally. It's the already not yet, right? And we're going to get into that. That's exactly right. I, I kind of press into that today in my, in my study as I was preparing for this. Um, so creation is, is, is eagerly waiting, uh, eagerly longing for our revealing, our unveiling. Creation, um, in this very moment, I had a typo there, is waiting for, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Um, th- this word includes the roots for head and think or expect. So some speculate that it's, it's, it's kind of tapping into like creation is craning its neck, waiting for, waiting to see our, the apocalypse, you know, our, our, our full and future glory of which we have a taste now in Christ. Um, what will it look like and be like for us to live in our full inheritance as sons and daughters of God? I don't think we can comprehend or even imagine it now. Um, all we have is taste, kind of like when you were a kid and you got the remember going to you go to Baskin Robbins and you would you they had those little pink they still do those little pink spoons and you would I want to taste that. We'd always wear them out. They'd be like after like eight tastes, they'd be like, you know what, kid, just can you please order something? But you like I want that. And you get the little taste with it looks like a like a like a shovel, and uh, it's like you know. But dude, I'm waiting for the glory. I'm waiting for like the three scoops or whatever. You know, that's just a taste. We're getting tastes now. Let me quote Lewis again from the same sermon. He says. In speaking of this desire for our, our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, he's talking about that desire of what's coming, right? I feel a certain shyness. Um, I am almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each, in each one of you. The secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia or romanticism or adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in a very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. 
We cannot tell it because it's a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. And I don't know that he goes on to say it here, so, but like sometimes he says it in a di- different part maybe of, the, of this sermon, but like you can, when you hear a beautiful piece of music, it's like you're, you're leaning into it going, you're kind of, it's right in front of you. You feel like you can go reach out and grab it. It's like that is creating a longing in me that I know is going to be fulfilled, but yet it's not fulfilled by that piece of music or a sunset that you see or a time with friends around a beautiful meal with beautiful conversation and a glass of wine. And it's like, it's bringing you into something that you just want to, enter into you and fulfill you, but it's never quite enough. It's always just out of reach. And what he's saying is that's not something to be captured. It's an arrow to point us toward what's coming into the Lord himself, right? So he says, we cannot tell it because it's a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedients to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments. He was a, a, an English uh, romantic poet. Uh, to identify it with certain moments in his own past. But all this is a cheat. So Wordsworth to say, oh, this, this right here, this, uh, he, w- he would say, oh, you know, nostalgia. This, this is taking me back to a time in my childhood, which was just perfect. It wasn't perfect in your childhood. That's nostalgia. It wasn't perfect then. It was kind of miserable. You were a kid and you were whining, you know? But we, we, we tell ourselves that, oh, no, um, it, it was in the past or it's coming in the future outside of Christ. No, it, only in Christ, right? Um, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. This is the longing Paul's talking about, right? These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, right? The thing to grab onto. No, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. So this eager longing I'm talking now is, a pre- is, is presently a groaning. It hurts, not just for us, but for all creation. It hurts to wait for something you long for but don't yet have. The phrase desire unfulfilled makes the heart sick. Uh, so it is with creation. We've been saved and we are being saved, but we have not yet been fully transformed. We are, we are not yet what we will be. Creation's waiting for this. Creation is leaning forward toward this. It's groaning for this. Because presently, it has been subjected to a bondage of decay, death. Now, from a cellular level, we can see this, um, but also from the cellular to the cosmic level. How do we know that the universe itself is actually dying? It's running down. We've talked about this before, I think. The redshift. The redshift, you know, the, the, uh, the longer wavelength of light is, is a red, it's, it's a red wavelength, and, the, and a shorter compressed wavelength of light is a blue, I think. Um, but the redshift in the universe set, tells physicists unequivocally that this is a commonplace among all astrophysicists. It's, it's a fact that uh, the universe is moving away from it's, it's, it's expanding, it's, and, it's coo- and it's cooling, right? And it's, and it's dying, essentially. Death is on a cosmic level. Death is on a cellular level. Um, creation continues, but it's dying. Uh, I did my, my, th- my dissertation in Edinburgh, Scotland, on the first 11 verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, now, it speaks of a universe that is groaning. Those, the opening of the book in an ancient literature position was very, very important in, 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 in works 
uh, in written works. And so the beginning and the ending of the book of Ecclesiastes really talk about a winding down, like a, on a cosmic level. And in that, it's talking also, it's, it's actually connecting the winding down, the groaning and the death in all creation that infuses creation. It's connecting it to, like Jordan said earlier, it's, it's connecting it to our sin, to our rebellion. That was basically what I came up with in my thesis as I did a deep dive into these 11 verses for four years. Um, so it speaks of the universe that is groaning there at the beginning of Ecclesiastes. It's caught in a cycle it can't escape. Uh, it's been put under a sort of spell because of our sin, our rebellion. Uh, there's a word that the author of Ecclesiastes uses to express this. And the word in the Hebrew is, does anyone know? Hevel. Hevel. Okay, of course you do. I was looking to you, Andrew. Hevel or Hevel. It is the book's theme word. It's the key to understanding the book. Every commentator agrees. If you get Hevel, you get what, what he means in the book. It's the theme word. At its most basic level, but it's, it's a protean word. It's a, it, it changes, right, depending on the context. But at its most basic level, the word means breath or vapor. So the concrete meaning uh, of the word is, is breath or vapor, which is why, why sometimes it's translated like uh, fleeting or transient evanescent. It's never translated evanescent, but that's what it means. Uh, So it means breath or vapor. All of life, our life and the life of creation is breath of vapor. Hevel. It's even breathy. It's, it's onomatopoeic. Hevel. It's, it's, um, it sounds like what it means. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And that to overcome our Hevel. Yeah. Right. And the breath of God, to my understanding, is never called Hevel. It's simply, um, you're right, because the Ruach of God, the, 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 yeah, the, the wind of God, the breath of God, the spirit of God, it, it, the, all three words in the Hebrew mean... Ruach means all three words, breath, spirit, or wind. Say that the way it's supposed to be said. Ruach. So that, it's interesting that, that's a great point that you may or may not have made intentionally, but I think you did, that, is that we need to overcome our hevel, our breath, which ends up going into the dirt and being extinguished and leading to death and dying and is, and is certainly fleeting, but wasn't made to be that way. For that to be overcome on a cosmic scale, we need the renewal of the ruach, of the breath of God, right? Um, that has departed because of sin, but Christ brings that back by actually expiring himself and by his breath. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of poetically theologizing, but it's all, it's all true. Um, by his breath expiring on the cross, right? So uh, the Greek translation, which is called the Septuagint of the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the original Hebrew, in all 39 occurrences of the Hebrew word hevel, in the book of Ecclesiastes, uses this word here that Paul uses in, in uh, verse 19. Excuse me, in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility. I think that's the best translation overall, unless you say, just say breath or vapor in Ecclesiastes of the word hevel. Um, and he says, he uses, so in all 39, or maybe it's 38, occurrences of the key word, the key Hebrew word hevel in the book of Ecclesiastes, in the Greek translation of that, called the Septuagint, the word that is used is the same word Paul uses here, metoites, 
which is translated futility and means futility. So many think that what Paul's doing here is he's actually, he's actually commenting on the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. He's actually giving us here a divinely inspired um, unpacking, exegesis of what the author of Ecclesiastes is talking about when he tells us that the creation was subjected to futility. The word that the King James uses to translate this here is vanity and in, um, and in Ecclesiastes. Creation is frustrated because of our condition, because of our rebellion, because our condition has spread to it, to all of creation, like ink and water. Right? We talked about that. Why? Well, we already talked about that too. Right? We already talked about that too. We were given stewardship and charge over all that God had made. But when we fell, and because... Because of that, when we fell, all creation fell. So, so finally, so again, creation is groaning and it's waiting for our redemption. So that, why? Why is it waiting for our redemption? So that what? What can happen to it? Yeah, it can be redeemed too. It's not just going to be we who are fully glorified. We're already, we're already redeemed and we're, we get taste of the new creation coming. But we will be fully redeemed, glorified. And when that happens, we for God, is, God in his ordering... We, the image bearers of God, those who have dominion over creation, we will be glorified first. And once that happens, creation knows it's coming next. See, it's, it, it, it is hitched to our lodestar. Creation is hitched to our lodestar. So last point, connection to glory. God subjected the creation to futility, a bondage of decay, but it will be emancipated once we are fully. Okay. So, um, conversely, when we unfall, when we unfall, when, when we are redeemed, creation will begin to be transformed. Our transformation is partial now, so is creation's. You know, when we as partially transformed, redeemed, blood-bought sinners made saints who are still in this in-between place, what C.S. Lewis calls the shadowlands, we, we've begun to truly taste the, the world to come, the life to come. We have God living inside of us, but we're not yet what we will be. Our adoption, even our adoption, our redemption is not yet complete, but it's as good as done because it won't, God won't ever, he will always finish what he starts. If we have the Holy Spirit in us, Paul tells us, we have the guarantee of our full glory coming. He'll never unson or undaughter us. But, um, I don't know where I was going with that. I lost my train of thought, but that's okay. Um, so our, trans- our transformation is partial now, so is creation's. But one day our transformation will be total, and so will creation's, okay? Um, there is hope unshakable not only in our partial transformation by the Spirit indwelling us, but also in the fact that our transformation is only partial. What do I mean by that? That this is not as good as it gets. I love that movie, As Good As It Gets. You know, it's, it's just a very clever, really, it's, yeah. Uh, Jack Nicholson, old, older movie, Helen Hunt. Um, this is not as good as it gets, thank God. That's part of what Paul's saying here, right? There's hope in him saying, hey, this is just a taste. It's a real taste, and it's a guarantee of what's coming, but, man, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's actually really hopeful. This is as good as it gets, man, I'm not that happy right now. I mean, um, so this is not as good as it gets, that the partial will become total, um, now, this is where I want to go back to for a second to what Jordan was talking about earlier. How do we understand verse 23? Okay, verse 23. 
where Paul says, and not only the creation. So let's go back up to verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And by the way, just think about it. Like we were saying earlier, everything, all the beauty we see in creation, we take vacations. We, Houston's not the prettiest place, but we, we see beauties even here. But there are so many amazing parts of the world. He said, hey, it's like, it's like the kid being in the birth canal. It's like a woman in labor compared to the actual child, the human life being born. Man, the kid's coming. Right now, there's just groaning in pain. Yeah, but what's coming is gonna be what we've been waiting for, what we were made for. So um, verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly, here it is, as we wait eagerly for, there's that verb wait again, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Hang on. Paul is saying, and Jordan touched on this earlier, he's saying right here clearly that we don't yet have. The implication is if we wait eagerly for adoption and redemption, we, don't, we aren't yet adopted and we aren't yet redeemed. Is that true? No. no, it's not true. That can't be true. So what's Paul saying? In one sense, we are not yet adopted. In one sense. Okay, we know we are truly adopted. And how, how, does, how do we connect 23, though, to what? Verses 15 through 17. Remember what we read last week? Where Paul says, yeah, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We get to call God the same thing Jesus called him in the Aramaic. But as a child, like in Roman law or any, in our law, right, is adoption. He comes in, heir. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Meaning, that one day, a child will receive yeah. the estate. We haven't yet come into that estate, so, that inheritance. Yeah, yeah, so you can be adopted and yet not have come in. Totally. Right. Yep. Yeah, I think that's right. (sighs) Curve breaker. He's the curve breaker. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. So yes, we're heirs, but we haven't yet come into our full inheritance. Okay. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So our suffering for Christ is a mark. One of, one of many. It's a mark of the fact that we're true children with a true inheritance that we'll fully come into in our full glorification one day. Um, so the answer is already yours. Um, already yours. What? Already. Okay, hang on. See, this is a, a little princess I typed in today. Um, we're already adopted and redeemed, but only partially, not, uh, not yet fully. Okay, our adoption is connected to the redemption of our bodies, as the next phrase says. So whenever you're confused, just keep reading. Sometimes that helps. He says in verse 24, he says, for in this hope we were saved. Not, now hope that is, not, uh, that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Um, so uh, the redemption of the body is thus not the essence of sonship, but the revealing of sonship, right? So the fact that we will have, that our bodies will be resurrected as Christ's, um, it's not the essence of our sonship, but it will reveal that we are sons and daughters. And that's coming to every child of God. It's coming. As certain as the sun will rise, more certain. So that when we see him, we will become as he is, knowing as we are fully known. Now we live in what C.S. Lewis calls the shadowlands, the time between the already and the not yet. So in the sh- what's a, what is a shadow? Is a shadow total darkness? 
No, how do you get a shadow? Yeah, you have light. You have light, but you're, you're in shade, but the light's there, but you're in shade. So the C.S. Lewis called this time the Shadowlands, that Christ has already come. He's redeemed us. He's, he's taken on himself and into himself and defeated and buried everything that separates us from God. He's brought us into sonship and daughterhood. Um, and, and he's been resurrected, but we haven't yet been resurrected, but yet he lives inside of us. There's that guarantee we have of the spirit of what's coming. He's, we've tasted it. He's truly with us, but bodily he's in heaven. And one day he's going to return and, and he's going to consummate what he inaugurated. He's going to finish what he started. Um, we live in the time between the already. He's already redeemed us. He's already achieved the decisive victory and opened up the wide way for us to become, to run to, into the Father, into the Father's arms and have him have a smile on his face no matter what we've done because of what Jesus has done. He's fully purchased our salvation and yet we haven't entered into it fully yet, right? So that's the already, but then the not yet of we haven't yet entered into glory fully. We've tasted it. We're already redeemed, already children of God, already having a spirit living in us, but we are not yet what we will be. We live in the shadow lands. Not the darkness, like y'all said, but the shadow lands. But the sun is soon to return. As I've said before, the sun returning is the next big thing on the biblical timeline. It's the next big thing. We're, the end times and the tribulation, I'm going to blow some people's minds here, but it's not controversial if you just read, anyway, just read Revelation, read some... The, the end times of the tribulation are the times biblically between the first and second coming of Christ. It's the church age. It's the age of the spirit. It's now. That these, we are in the end times. Just go read the beginning of Peter's Pentecost sermon. He says, he starts it by saying, he's quoting from Joel 2 and he says, in the last days, in, or in the end times, it's the same phrase. In these la, he says, in these last days, these signs will manifest. And he's talking about then, right then, 2,000 years ago. When the Spirit came down and people started calling on the Lord and being saved and believing on Jesus and being made sons and daughters of God, he says, this is the start of the end times. They will continue until Christ returns. Christ returning is the next big thing. And when he comes again, he finishes what he started. Right? So um, the transformation will be cataclysmic and cosmic in its proportions is what Paul's saying. It will be a cosmic extravaganza. So creation eagerly awaits it. But until then, it's been subjected to futility. Who has subjected? That's a passive verb. It has been subjected to. Who's, who's subjected creation to futility? Adam. That's true. But who? That's, that is true. Adam did. But who is super, who's been superintending it all for a greater and a glorious purpose? Who, who, but Satan is God's puppet. Right? Right. Of course, Adam, you're right. Um, but I think Paul, I, can, I, I need to look this up. I think Paul's talking about, hey, God is the one who's done this for the overarching purposes of bringing, of having, of fully redeeming and glorifying us and then bringing all creation in our train uh, into this glory of, of Christ together. And then the feast starts. Um, God has subjected it. Why? Verse 21. Verse 21 that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Uh, So the party uh, will be epic when we, then creation after us, are brought into the full glory of Jesus Christ. Um, There's this scene in The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Has anyone read? Raise your hand if you've read The Great Divorce. Okay, so three of you. Okay, 
Highly recommended, very good. I looked for it on my shelf today and disturbingly could not find it. I used to have two copies and anyway, it's floating around somewhere. But uh, it's Rob, my wife's favorite of the, of the C.S. Lewis books that she's read. And it's basically, it's a fictive work of heaven and hell. And there are hellions, people in hell that take a field trip to heaven. And that's kind of how the book starts. And there was maybe one exception, but most of them, they get a chance. Like they can get off the hell bus and they kind of walk around heaven. And with one exception, they all hate it and they all choose to go back to hell. Um, And so one of the things that C.S. Lewis said, I think more than once, is sort of one of the the takeaways of the the story. And that is that um, in the end, God gives us what uh, and I and I and I actually, I actually disagree with him here. I, I disagree with Lewis, believe it or not, on a number of fronts, and this is one of them. But he he would say, um, and we we'll get in a couple of weeks in Romans nine to why I disagree with him. But um, he said, in the end, God says either um, your will be done, or, or or my will be done, or maybe one of the ways Lewis says it is we either say my I say Taylor my will be done. Or I say to God, thy will be done. And so the hellions on the, on, on, the, on the field trip to heaven hate heaven so much. And they don't, they don't, in fact, they hate heaven because they hate God. Because if you hate God, let me tell you something. You're really going to hate heaven. And you're going to hate the new creation. Um, the new creation won't just be me eating cotton candy and doing whatever I want to. That's, it's, it will be the very unmitigated presence of the living God. So if you love God, you'll love it. If you hate God, you will absolutely hate it. And so they choose hell. Either way, all that's really not necessary. They, they, uh, there's a scene kind of toward the end of the book where there's this, I think he's like the one hellion that, uh, that makes it maybe. I can't remember. It's been a long time since I read it. But he's got a little salamander on his, uh, maybe my favorite scene in the book, on his shoulder. And it kind of represents, I think, like the sin of lust. It's an oily sort of, you know, oleaginous, is that a word? Uh, little thing. Yeah. Little $64,000 SAT word. Um, and, and he's, and that's, it, it represents like a, a stronghold, a spirit and, and kind of it's wed. Sin isn't just something we do. It, 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 it weaves itself into the warp and woof of our, the fabric of our being. It, and, and we need a deliverer to deliver us from these things. We can't, we can't extricate ourselves by ourselves. And so there's this encounter that this man has. He's convinced himself that this little salamander on his shoulder, who's, is, is, you know, it's a stronghold. It's a demon. It's holding him back from the life that God intended for him. And it's, it whispers in his ear, and it's this little worm, this little lizard. And uh, it's, he's convinced himself that it's his pet, and that it's really, it's, his life is tied to the life of this little thing. And, and so the angel comes along and offers. He's like, can I, I'm cutting a lot out, but he's like, can I, uh, can I take that from you? Can I deliver you from that thing? And he's like, oh, no, 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 it's fine. It's not doing anybody any harm. And he goes on and on for pages. And the angel, he, he needs the guy's permission. Like, look, I can take care of it for you, but you have to let me. And finally the guy, and the, the whole time the salamander's like whispering in his ear like, hey, if I go, you go. And there's this great scene in The Lord of the Rings where that happens with Theoden, the king of the, of the horse lords of, of, the, of the Rohirrim of, of Rohan. And he's basically possessed by Saruman and, and Saruman says through him, if I go, he goes. And, and of course, it's a lie. Like once he's delivered from the, the grasp of Saruman, he actually comes into himself and begins to live. And so sin and Satan convince us that, oh, I have to have this thing to live, but it's a total lie. It's the opposite of that. And so he finally gives permission to the angel to crush the salamander. And as soon as he does, the man 
freaks out, but only for a second. He breaks the salamander's back and throws it on the ground, and the man squeals, and then he, and then he, up comes this. He was kind of an oily, bent-over, kind of despicable creature, and he, be, he becomes this broad-chested, amazing, glistening, Adamic figure, you know, pre-fall, and he jumps on the, and the, and the salamander becomes this stallion, and he jumps on the stallion, and he rides off to the hill, into the hills, and it's like, wow, look what happens when we, when we allow God, we give him all of ourselves and he delivers us from what we thought was life but was actually death. It's this wonderful picture. Um, but the scene from The Great Divorce where that scene I just described, um, where the man runs off, he's freed and he runs off to, to become who he was made to be. This is a taste of not only our, our transformation, but that of all creation. It doesn't begin once we die, Right? It begins the moment that God takes up residence in us by his Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 14. And when we look to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the glory that awaits us. Uh, I don't think, friends, that we think about this enough at best. Most of us uh, do so occasionally. But instead, what Paul is saying is we ought to live in constant awareness of this reality, in constant awareness from the minute we wake up until the minute we go to sleep. And we ought to dream about it. To do so will transform our lives, the decisions we make. We won't try to grab all the gusto now and feed ourselves to the fullest on all the things that we think we need um, and looking to those things, like Lewis said in The Way to Glory, to, to be the thing, but rather as pointers to what's coming and to Jesus himself. Uh, but we'll sacrifice for the good of others because we know that future glory is coming. Um, I think that Christians ought to be a people of great longing, of great longing and of great vision and of invincible hope. Um, Verses 24 through 25, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Um, I'm going to, I just have a couple more things, but I think I'm just going to skip most of it. And... um, let me just say that the, the long wait will make the consummation all the better. A man who waits for his wife finds the marriage night all the more rewarding. The Olympian who trains her guts out relishes the gold. So much pain went into that glory. This is all but a whisper of what is coming. All the pain will not be for naught. On the contrary, it will increase the glory that awaits us. And so all creation is straining its neck craning its neck, waiting for our full redemption, our adoption, our full adoption, our full glory. And then it will spread out to the farthest reaches of the cosmos as God remakes everything after we are fully remade. Um, So we've seen photos of of space, but C.S. Lewis preferred the term heavens because space, what does space connote? When I say the word space. Yeah, emptiness. Black, lifeless, but... He says, no, no, the heavens are populated, and his space trilogy is full of this kind of thing, but it's, the heavens are populated with life, and not the kind of life we have here on earth, but color and all sorts of amazing creativity, right? And actually, all we have to do is, we, we can understand that because we've seen pictures of the, from the Hubble Space Telescope. We have the privilege of these amazing, hey, if you're having a bad day, just click on, just Google Hubble Space Telescope photographs, hit images. It's mind-blowing how beautiful and massive uh, these, these, what God is, has done out in the farthest reaches, farthest reaches that we can see anyway of space. The beauty defies description. 
My brothers and sisters, like I've said earlier, this is the groaning trash can universe compared to what's coming. This is but the birth pains. This is, this is the baby in the birth canal before it's even born. Can you imagine the baby about to be born? I think we need to try more. With imagination and faith guided by God's word, let us try together. Let us live every moment with this anticipation coloring our work, our rest, our play, our sacrifice, our suffering. Uh, I want to recommend Heaven, the book Heaven by Randy Alcorn. If you haven't read it, it'll change your life. It's just this on steroids for 500 pages. It's wonderful. Um, With my own kids, I actually avoid speaking of heaven. Um, Nothing wrong with that, but a lot of times, I think a lot of Christians in the West will just think, we think of our final destination as heaven. It's not. Um, that's, it's a holding place until Christ returns. And when he returns, he's bringing heaven down to earth and he's going to remake everything. I speak instead of the new, of the new creation or the new heavens and the new earth, right? Um, in heaven, we won't have our bodies. We won't have the mountains. It'll be wonderful. We'll be with our Savior, but it's, it's just, a, it's, it's not the final destination. God made us, you know, the word Adam, human, comes, it, 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 the word Adama in the Hebrew means ground. Adam, Adam, was brought from the Adama. There's a special connection there. Uh, there's a reason that we love this earth, and, but it's broken, and there's stuff wrong with us and with the creation, but full glory and redemption is going to be the new creation. We're going to be allowed to be here and to adventure and to explore and to work and to play without any of the, without death, without sin or self, no locks on doors, no death, no more sin, perfect consummation with our king bodily among us forever. You know, it's just going to be, it's going to be the op, it's, it's, it's not going to be an ethereal, bodiless, harp playing on clouds existence. That's Gary Larson and the Farside cartoon. That's not what's coming. That's not what's coming. Um, Christ's resurrection was the first fruit of this bumper crop. Because he rose, we will receive new bodies, and we, the new creation is absolutely coming. His resurrection is a guarantee of that. Um, let me finish with, um, with uh, oh, I thought I was done, but this is other stuff. I'll, I'm not going to say it. Um, I may say that this last thing, but there's a, um, there's a little, I'll just reference it. There's a little, um, there's a little short story called Leaf by Niggle. Did you read that? Okay, J.R. Tolkien author of the Lord of the Rings wrote it. It's, it's a one sitting read. Um, the short of it is that Tolkien was actually, it was kind of autobiographical. He was a punk. He was a um, perfectionist. If you can't tell from his, <laughs> from his writing, he was a perfectionist and he took forever. Lewis would just pump out works and Tolkien took forever and much encouragement and prodding to complete his stuff. And Lord of the Rings took way longer than anyone thought publishers, friends, himself, and he felt about his life like he just didn't do much, like not nearly as much as his imagination thought he was going to do. And so much of our lives is like, man, I know what I could be and what I could do, but I've fallen so far short. I mean, that's most of my life, right? And he, the basic gist of the story is that this, I'm not going to tell the whole thing, but he, this, this guy, Niggle, which, which to niggle at something is to kind of work away at something here, here to work at something there, but not really to get much done. So the leaf by Niggle, he... He, he, he has this grand vision of an amazing tree that he's painting and he keeps getting interrupted in his life. And he finally, he actually dies. And all that he's been able to accomplish was one single leaf on the tree. But when he dies and he finds out, the short of it is he finds out 
in the life to come, that actually that, that little deposit, that seed he planted, that real work that he did, but not nearly what he knew he could do, actually because of what Christ had done, if I can say it, because of what Christ had done, because of his death and resurrection and are you not being united to him truly and the, and the new creation that is absolutely coming because of his death and resurrection and those who are united to him. Um, that little tree grew in, that little leaf grew into an amazing tree that was far more wonderful than even the tree that he thought he could have done in his own life. And so our, our, by faith, what we do in this life, even our own suffering, especially sometimes our own suffering and privation are seeds that we're planting that will absolutely grow into. Um, and, and let me just, uh, into trees. And let me just say, and I think there's something in that, what I just said in, in the way that Tolkien ends his Lord of the Rings, where there's, the, there's planting of trees with little seeds at, at the end as they, as they see creation renewed. But on that note, um, Martin Luther, I've quoted him before, the great reformer, he was asked, um, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? I know I've said it enough. Somebody here knows what he said. What did he say? Yeah. He said, I plant a tree. And what was his, how did he finish that phrase? I plant a tree. And what was his explanation? Well, basically, okay. I plant a tree, think how well it would do. I plant a tree because it would be amazing. I plant a tree, think how well. In other words, what he understood, what he grasped was what Paul's talking about here. That this is a trash can compared to what's coming. And the new creation, nothing is wasted. Our present sufferings and endeavors in Christ will, they are seeds that are planted that will, they won't be, they won't be cut off and cut short. On the contrary, the exact opposite. They will grow. These little seeds, these leaves will grow into full-grown, wonderful trees, glorified, finished, completed things in the new creation that will last forever. What you do now matters if you do it by faith in Christ. Your work, your play, your rest, your service, your sacrifice, your privation, everything, okay? It all matters and it will matter forever. And that's a huge part of what Christ's resurrection means. It means death doesn't cut things off, you see? There's a continuity. Um, so let me just finish with this practical point. I think that was practical, but this is practical too. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters um, as I close that um, the, he says that, you know, the enemy, Satan, uh, wants to keep us living, thinking about two, one of two different timelines, what, or one of two different aspects of time. What are those two different aspects? Anyone know? I didn't say that very well. He wants, the enemy, Satan, wants to keep us um, thinking about the past and dwelling in the past or looking to the future, pining, pining away for, pining after the past or looking ahead of the future, waiting for what's coming. And we do often live in those. And he says Satan is, is actively invested in keeping us in one of those two places. Why? Because the past you can't change. You can't change it. But you can waste your life thinking about how you could have changed it. The future, you can't control. The one, Satan knows, the one, thing, the one thing that we're given that we can do something about is the present. When we're living in the past and the future, we're not fully present. And that's exactly what Satan wants. And so Jim Elliott, the, the missionary killed by the Aka Indians, um, he planted the seed of his own body and ministry and it grew into this amazing, amazing thing. Um, he said, wherever you are, I think this is one of the most important things I've ever heard. Wherever you are, be all there. Let me tell you one of the biggest things that keeps you from that. Right here. Right here. The smartphone. 
Can it be used for good? Oh, of course. But let me tell you, nothing is more distracting. When I'm doing this, I am, and my kid is on the other side of this. I'm not giving, I'm not, I'm not wherever I am, be all there. Okay, let me just finish by reading it. Wherever you are, be all there. The point I want to make is this, and then we close. The best live in the present. Uh, um, the best thing is to live in the present. We need to remember God's, to live fully in the present, we need to remember God's past faithfulness. The Bible is full of, of, of uh, enjoinders, commands, exhortations to remember what he's done. Look to, look to the cross, look to his past faithfulness in your life and look forward to the coming glory. Those two things will allow us to live fully in the present, filled by his spirit, eyes fixed on Christ, fully present with those around us, fully present in our work, fully present in our play, entrusting, entrusting ourselves to him um, because of what he's done, because of what he's doing, and because of what he will do and what he's bringing us into. So let's, let's pray briefly. I'm going to pray very briefly, and then we're going to sing only if somebody can read music, because I cannot. But we'll sing the one on the right if, if, we can, if we can dig it. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for this word. Help us to live remembering your faithfulness in the past to help anchor us in these present sufferings in this broken world, broken sinners that we are, but redeemed, looking ahead to the glory that's coming, living in light of that, Lord. We pray it in your name. Amen. So can anyone read music? Can anyone, this, this, this hymn on the right, A Few More Years Shall Roll? Can, if I had a guitar, I could play it. Oh, yeah. Can anyone give us the tune or no? I, I can't. You know, if you, if you look down, I picked this in part because it, it fits what we talked about, but Horatius Bonar, if you look down to the left, it's, it's the hymn on the right, A Few More Years Shall Roll. Um, down on the left, it says Horatius Bonar, 1844. He was actually the, 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 uh, the church planter and the first pastor of the church that Robin and I uh, worship, were members of in Edinburgh and uh, walked to every Sunday, or we drove some, but... I got to preach from his pulpit. Hmm? Oh, oh, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe it is. Does anybody? I don't think about that. Hey, you know what? Huh. I think it goes to row, row, row your boat. Ah, no, let, let stop. Let no, well, YouTube it. You're going to ruin it. Do you want to sing it? Yes. Well, row, row, row your boat. Just Mom. Years. No.